So we're going to continue on in, in this series that we started, which uh, we're calling Choosing Jesus. And this week, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever had to wrestle with something you believe that doesn't line up with Scripture? Have you ever had to weigh those two things, what you want to believe but what the Bible says may be different? I mean, there's some, some doctrines even today that I still kind of wrestle with a little bit. Like, am I, am I actually on the, have the right understanding of this? And, and I wrestle with it. I don't have clarity either way. And so as we jump in today, I want to take us to a part of Luke where we find this is what happens to some people. And these people actually happen to be in Jesus' own hometown of Nazareth. So if you have your Bible with you, I want you to open to Luke chapter 4. And we're going to read about this, this event that happened as Jesus leaves his time in the desert and is tempting from the wilderness. And he actually comes home. He comes home to his hometown. Luke chapter 4, we'll start in verse 14. It says, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out throughout all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. I mean, already we're seeing Jesus is coming out of this, this temptation time, and he's still full of the Spirit, kind of on this spiritual high that he's, he's, he's had as he's uh, faced Satan and won. And he comes back to his home region, to Galilee. And, and like I said, we're going to actually get into his actual hometown this morning. But already it's starting to be known around that he's been preaching in some synagogues and he's known to be a good teacher, an orator, a good speaker, and a good teacher. You know, if, if it was for us today, this, this kind of a person, we'd probably want to put them on the speaking circuit or, you know, team them up with some worship band and put them on a tour. But here he is, he's coming, the news is starting to spread. In verse 16, he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up and as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. It's interesting. I've, I felt a little bit of this coming to your hometown. Um, since I've been a pastor, a, a number of times I've been asked to go to my home church where I grew up and, and to come to speak to them. Well, not to their church, but to the retirees. They have a, a significant retirees ministry. And, and, and I get to go there and I see all these people who were the ones that sort of taught me as I was growing up. And I come back, and to them, I'm like little Davy, right? Like, here comes Davy. He's been doing some great, wonderful things out there. But they bring me back in to, to sort of say hi and to, to speak with the retirees. So I, I get this idea of, of coming back to your hometown and standing in front of someone to, to deliver a message. And here we have Jesus coming back to his hometown doing the same thing standing up in front of the people that he grew up with, that he learned from, that, that he spent doing life with. And the day is going to come when he becomes, begins to be known as Jesus of Nazareth. And to us, we look back, and we always, maybe have always known of him as Jesus of Nazareth, so it's no big deal. And yet, for some of the people who spoke those words, it was actually more of a, a degrading thing. It was a demeaning title, a derogative. Oh, Jesus, he's from, like, Nazareth, right? Nazareth was this, like, little despised hometown. It was unknown, really, to those in the first century, I mean, here's Jesus. He's born in Bethlehem, right? The royal city of David. A city that may be humble compared to Jerusalem, but yet it has this, this notoriety, this uh, uh, being known as the city of this great King David. But Jesus is from Nazareth. This little out-of-the-way town. 
And it tells us here in verse 16 that he goes into the synagogue on the Sabbath as was his custom. And I think it's important to note that Jesus, even though he is God, he still makes the effort and finds it important to be in the synagogue on the Sabbath, right? Of, of all the people who've walked the earth, I think there's one we could say doesn't need to go to church. And no, it's not you. Jesus, but he still made it his custom. It was his habit to go and be there, to be with the people of God. And it says here that he stood to read. And so in the synagogue on the Sabbath, visiting rabbis, teachers would come and they would offer them a scroll to read and then to expound on it. And he stands in the habit, and the, the habit or the, the tradition was that they would stand for the reading of the scripture, which is what we even did that this morning, right? When Michaela finished the announcement, she asked us to stand as she read scripture to us. And it says in verse 17, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. So here's Jesus in his hometown synagogue where he'd spent many, many Sabbaths growing up. And he's handed the scroll of Isaiah. He, he finds the place in the scroll, to, which actually we have as Isaiah 61, 1 and, and 2. And he reads this. And the people there listening are hearing him read this from Isaiah, and they're thinking, this is fantastic. You know, we love this passage from Isaiah, right? It's proclaiming good news for us, right? And who wouldn't want good news? He's proclaiming liberty for us. Finally, we're going to be free of Roman oppression. He's, he's proclaiming sight for us. The Lord's favor is on us. And that refers to the year of Jubilee, right? Every seven years, uh, Israel was to, to have a Sabbath of their fields. Let their fields lie barren for that year. But every seventh seven, they'd have to year of Jubilee every 50 years. So he's reading to this to them, and, and the people are getting very excited because this is wonderful news, a reminder that we, we are the people of God and all these great things are going to happen for us. And it says he sat down to teach. All the eyes are fixed on him. The, these people had already heard that he was a, a good teacher and they were excited to hear what he's going to say about this reading. And so Jesus goes on. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? Jesus stands up or sits down and has the audacity to say that what you are reading today is being fulfilled. It's being fulfilled. You can almost see their heads start to tilt a little. You know how you, you talk to a dog and they, they want to understand, but they can't. They sort of tilt their head at you like, I don't get it, but I'm excited. I want to know what you're going to say. You almost feel this tension beginning to fill this synagogue. 
I mean, on the one hand, they're marveling at his gracious words. I think that's referring mostly to the fact that he was a good speaker, like he knew how to speak. And the fact that they were marveled at his gracious words doesn't mean that they necessarily believed it or agreed with it. It could be a positive. I mean, he's grown up with them. They're just happy. This is little Jesus. He's grown up with them. He's eaten meals with them. He's worked on projects at their homes with his dad. Maybe they're looking at this positively, or maybe they're looking at this negatively now, this tension. And maybe they're a little bit incredulous. What's he saying? Like, how is this possible? Like, does, does he not remember what this means? This is for us. We, we taught him this when he was growing up. And Jesus, because of who he is, he knows what they're thinking. Instead of ignoring the tension, he, hit, hit, he hits it head on. Verse 23, And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Word's been getting around. Jesus hasn't just been speaking, and he's not just a good speaker, but he's been doing some signs, some miracles. They've begun to hear the stories of all the things he's been doing. He says, you want me to do for you what I've done for them. They're they're asking for him to do a sign. Maybe they're asking for him to do some party trick. Show us something that you've been doing elsewhere and let us see for real who you really are. And he goes on, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. You know, they're thinking, we know you. We know your family. We know all the pieces of your life. And in some regard, familiarity breeds contempt. You've heard that saying before. The more you get to know someone, the more, maybe the less you want to believe or, or follow them because they're just, it's just Dave. Familiarity breeds contempt starting to see a little bit of this in this group here on this day. Jesus goes on, but in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. Jesus uses one of their own stories from, the, from 1 Kings, to relay to them kind of what he's trying to get at. This is a story that maybe, maybe you've read this, maybe you remember this story, but Elijah, who's a prophet of God, a prophet of Yahweh, he's serving in Israel in a time under an evil king, King Ahab. Ahab's married to Jezebel, and they're, they're not good Israelite king. He's not a good Israelite king. Reality is he had actually installed some altars to Baal. And so Elijah goes and he confronts this king, And he says, because of what you're doing, I'm going to pronounce a drought on the land for three years, six months, as Jesus says. And that drought means no rain. And no rain means no crops. No crops means no food, no flour, which means no bread. This punishment is not just for the king, though, right? It's for his people as well. And so Elijah gives this news to King Ahab, and then the Lord um, leads him to run away, basically, to this brook. And he gets to this brook, and, and the Lord pro- provides for Elijah. He has the ravens bring him food. Would you eat food from a raven? I mean, I th- guess if the Lord sent me and told me he was going to do it, I would do it. But he's fed by ravens at this brook, some encouragement, some rest. He's being cared for by the Lord. 
And then the Lord sends him somewhere else. He says, I need you to go to see someone. There's a widow in Zarephath. I want you to go there. She's going to feed you. And by the way, Zarephath of Sidon means this woman, this widow, is a Gentile. And so he arrives and finds this widow and he asks her for some bread. She has nothing left except for a little bit of flour and a little bit of oil. And she's getting prepared to, pre- to prepare this for her and her son for their last meal before they die. In 1 Kings 17, 13, Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterward, make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. Elijah encourages, go and do what you're doing. By all means, go make a last meal for you and your son. But before you do that, can you make me a cake? Put yourself in the widow's shoes for a minute. Here you are, like hungry, destitute, wanting nothing but to have one last meal of bread and then to die. And this prophet from Israel comes and says, hey, can you give me a cake? You know, make me a cake first, then go and make your bread and go and do all these things. But Elijah says, no, but the Lord's going to do something for you. The God of Israel is going to make so that your flour will not be used up. Your oil will not go dry. And it goes on, and she went and did as Elijah said. And she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent. Neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord, spoke by Elijah. It's amazing. The Lord went and sent Elijah to this woman outside of Israel to provide for her. Jesus says there's all kinds of widows in Israel at this time, but God doesn't send Elijah to any of them. God sends him to this Gentile. In the midst of a famine that would have affected the people of Israel as a whole, the Lord sends his prophet elsewhere to provide for a widow and her son. You can feel the tension increasing in the room as Jesus is saying this and bringing this to light. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on and tells another story from the Old Testament about Elisha, right? Elisha, another prophet of God. He was a a protege of, of Elijah. And Elisha hears about this man who's come to the king at the time, and the king's come from far away to to be healed of his leprosy. The king who he comes to says, like, I can't do this. Do you think I'm God? I can't heal your leprosy. And Elisha says, hey, send him over to me. I'll take care of this. And so this man, whose name is Naaman, he's the commander of the army of Syria, another Gentile. He comes to find Elisha, and Elisha doesn't even go out to meet him. In fact, Elisha sends his messenger out to him and says, hey, go wash in the Jordan River seven times. So Naaman, this commander of an army, he's a little upset. He's a little confused. Like a man of his position surely should have had this prophet come out and at least see him, maybe do some kind of ritualistic ceremony, and that's going to heal him of his leprosy. Instead, he's told to go and bathe in what he thinks is the nasty, dirty water of a river in Israel. We know Jews didn't think very highly of the Gentiles, and I think the same is the opposite is the true as well. The Gentiles seemed to think the Jews weren't that great either. But Naaman's servant, 
says to his commander, he says, my father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? This servant speaks some truth into the situation for this commander. And it says, so he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Again, Jesus is saying to the people in the synagogue in Nazareth, there were many lepers at that time in Israel, but it was to a Gentile that the Lord sent Elisha. I mean, Elijah and Elisha could have been sent to the lepers, the widows in Israel at the time, but it was to Gentiles they were sent. God shows his power and his mercy and his grace to these outsiders. I mean, on the surface, you should be thinking like, well, that's wonderful. Our God, the God of Israel, Yahweh, is able to provide for and to heal anyone, not just those of us within Israel. See, one of the beliefs of the day was that anyone's God could only uh, really work within the boundaries of their territory. Okay? This is why you hear there's some stories told of people who will take some soil from their home when they go on a long journey so they can put it down and stand on it while they pray because then their God can actually hear and act. Or you think of the story of Jonah, right? Jonah hears from God, go to the city of Nineveh and tell them to repent. Instead, Jonah, what's he do? He wants to get away, and he hops on a boat to go to Tarshish, which is outside of Israel, because he thinks by doing that, Yahweh, God, can't see him, and get, he can get away from the instruction of his God. So this is a deeply held belief that these promises in the Old Testament were for the people of God, the people who lived in Israel. And Jesus repeatedly calls on them and, and says... Uh, calls them out for regarding their power, the intention of Yahweh. And again, you'd think this would be good news for them. Our God's not just powerful here. Our God's powerful anywhere. He can do anything. But see, what God's doing is he's claiming and he's proving that he is not just the God of Israel. He's the God of all people. He's calling all the nations to himself. He can do mighty works anywhere. You'd think they'd be excited about that and happy about that, that, that teaching. But they're not. These people are so uh, steeped in this deeply held belief, they don't want to agree with Jesus. They don't like what he's saying. And they don't just voice their concern. Verse 28, when they had heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill in which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. Not only were they confronted with their belief, they were not just upset, they were angry, full of wrath. And they take Jesus to the brow of the hill and the idea was they would throw him down and then they would stone him. Why would they feel that upset about this? Why was, why was this understanding they, that Jesus was, was bringing to them, why was it so against what they thought? What Jesus is quoting and what he had read was from Isaiah 61. But he left something out of verse 2. 
verse 2 says this of Isaiah 61, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He said that. But he left out the next line. And the day of vengeance of our God. So the understanding was that they were, Jesus, Jesus was talking about the year of Jubilee and, and the Lord, year of the Lord's favor. Remember I said this was that, that one year in 50 where, where they celebrate and they have a Sabbath. I mean, this is the year that all the debts are erased. Any land that's been sold is returned to the ancestral families. Slaves are set to go free. They're excited about that, and that's a good thing. But maybe they're upset because he didn't talk about the day of vengeance, the day of the Lord, you know, the day that the Gentiles are going to get what they deserve. Retribution. See, these people in Nazareth wanted to choose Jesus as their king, but only on their own terms. They wanted Jesus to bring them peace and freedom and set them free from the oppression of Rome for, their, for themselves then and there. But it's not how it works. See, choosing Jesus' way is more than that. We need to choose Jesus as a suffering servant. They need to choose him as the Lord of their lives, not just their physical king. And the reality is we need to be careful we don't find ourselves doing the same thing. Choosing Jesus means choosing to believe what he says, even when it goes against what I believe. Choosing Jesus means choosing to believe what he says, even when it goes against what I believe. Now, we've all been taught things growing up about life, about faith. Even if you grew up in a non-Christian home, a non-church-going home, you were taught about faith in different ways. And those teachings become beliefs the longer we hold them. And they become more and more deep-seated the longer we hold them. And that makes it difficult for us to change them. There's a, an old saying that's attributed to Mark Twain, but there's no evidence it actually was him who said it. But I like this phrase. It's easier to fool people than to convince them that they've been fooled. Think about that for a moment. Some, something that you maybe have, been, have had to confront in your own life, something that you've believed, and then someone says, no, no, actually it's not true. You don't want to believe that it's not true. You want to believe what you believe is right. It's easier to fool people than to convince them they've been fooled. Choosing Jesus means choosing to believe what he says. Now, I want to take a moment and talk about choosing Jesus for a second. There, I had a brief conversation this week about the title of the series, and, and it was a good conversation. And the reality is, I didn't really clarify this last week. Because the point was kind of made that, like, we don't, we can't choose Jesus, really. And, and I want to say that's true, but, okay, work with me here. I want to clarify one thing. Choosing Jesus is only possible when we've first been chosen by God. Does that help a little, make him a little more clear? And where this comes from is, is this whole debate between predestination and free will, all right? Calvinism, Arminianism, and I'm not going to get into it today because it's such a big topic. Um, one thing you'd want to learn about me is I'm not a big fan of labels uh, because what I find is that sometimes by 
choosing one side or the other. You're, you're kind of choosing and, and leaning on the one to the neglect of the other. All right? Here's the problem with a lot of these, these either-or kind of uh, debates we have in the church. The Bible supports and teaches both sides. Not always. And becomes more of a, more of an, uh, a both and than an either-or. But it is easier for us to hold to one and just you know, hold that one strongly. So briefly on this topic of choosing Jesus, the Bible does teach, and I fully believe, that God chooses us before time began. Ephesians, the very intro of Ephesians says this, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. And there's lots more verses to support this. God chose us before time began. So it, it makes sense, the question of like, well, we can't really choose Jesus because God chooses us, and it's absolutely true. He's chose us. He predestined us. There we have it. God chose us before time began. But it's also true that we choose Jesus. Again, there's more support than just this, but John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Whoever believes. So here we have these two, what sometimes look like dichotomies, two opposite ends of an argument, when the reality is it's not either or, it's both and. Can I explain how it works? No. God chose us before time began, but somehow we choose Jesus. And I think part of this title of choosing Jesus is, is actually we need to make a choice each and every day. Are we going to choose to follow him or not? We have to hold these things in tension. They're not contradictory. Somehow this is one of those glorious mysteries that we have from the Bible and from God's word. God chose us, and then we choose Jesus. Choosing Jesus means choosing to believe what he says. When we think about choosing to believe, this isn't just a mental assent. Like, we don't just have this uh, idea we learn some things and we sort of say, yeah, I agree with that. Belief is actually more like, a, well, faith is more like belief in action. It's belief in action. And I think there's three components to this faith that we have to have as we choose to believe Jesus. The first is that intellectual assent. We choose because we understand what the Bible says, and it's a rational faith. It's been proven time and time again that it, it makes sense. We can believe this. But it doesn't stop there. It's not enough. Choosing to believe requires a daily walk of trust. We have to live a life trusting that what we say we believe is actually true. Sadly, there's many so-called Christians who live like God doesn't really exist. They'll say it, yeah, I believe in, I believe in God, I believe in Jesus. They live as if he's not really there. We, we call them practical atheists. If we say we believe, that's great. But we need to actually walk in that, walk and trust in that belief. But not just walk in trust, but we need to walk in obedience. 
I mean, a big part of walking in trust each and every day is walking in obedience to do what we've been called to do by God's word. See, we can't walk in trust and obedience and do what we want. We must obey what God's word tells us. Choosing Jesus means choosing to believe what he says. He equals Jesus equals truth. We don't have Jesus physically here with us in person telling us what we're supposed to do, telling us what is true. But we do have the Holy Spirit, and we do have God's Word. And the Bible's been shown to reliably pass down from generation to generation that we can trace it all the way back to the earliest days of the written, written Word that it hasn't changed. In fact, the fellowship statement of faith section on the Bible, which we adhere to, says this. We believe the Bible to be the complete word of God. That the 66 books as originally written comprising the Old and New Testaments were verbally inspired by the Spirit of God and were entirely free from error. That the Bible is the final authority in all matters of faith and practice and the true basis of Christian union. What we look at each week is God's word. We believe this is from God, inspired by him. That it's reliable, it's been passed down accurately from generation to generation. One of the things that means is when we read the Bible, we don't look at a verse and say, well, this is what this verse means to me. No, we look at it and say, what does this verse mean, period? We have to take God's word for what it is. It becomes very easy for us to manipulate, to rationalize, to change what we want it to mean for our situation. It's not how it works. Choosing Jesus means believing what he says, even when it goes against what I want to believe. Or what culture believes. I mean, the people of Nazareth believed Isaiah 61 was to be done for them. And that's true. But they thought it was to be done for them alone. And that's not true. Jesus clarifies that this salvation of the Lord's favor is for everyone, including the Gentiles. And I think for most of us, we should be grateful that's the case, should we not? This is, he says it's not just a new understanding. In fact, this has been the way it's been all through the Old Testament scriptures. That's why he highlights these two stories of the prophets for them. He, sh- he highlights the for-allness of the gospel. And Jesus does this throughout his ministry on the earth. You know, he, he says, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. He again and again takes their understanding and turns it upside down. I think it's important for us to understand that we have a standard. And we look to the standard, not to the culture. And that standard is the Bible. And, and for 2,000 years, billions of people have held to God's word. And we have to let the Bible speak into our culture, not the culture speaking into our Bible. I was listening to a podcast on the way down to Hamilton yesterday. And the guest was arguing for maybe a new way or a, a new old way of doing church. And I was excited about it because I always want to hear what someone has to say and what, how they argue for it from, the, from God's word, 
because maybe I've got it wrong, right? I want to believe I know that I've got a good understanding of God's word, but I also want to be careful that I don't just hold to what I hold to because of because what I hold to. And I was kind of saddened because this, this person didn't actually bring a biblical argument. They were telling stories about how this idea has worked in other churches. They were pointing to passages in the Bible uh, uh, sort of surrounding and all, all around the issue, but they weren't actually arguing for the, what they thought they were arguing for. And so I was a little bit saddened because I didn't feel like I learned anything from this one. I mean, some of the things they brought up I actually think were really important and good things to bring up, things we need to be doing and changing, but it wasn't supporting the argument they were actually thought they were arguing for. Choosing Jesus means choosing to believe what he says, even when it goes against what I believe. And submitting to the scriptures is part of that counting the cost that Jesus has for his disciples. He doesn't want you to follow him just because he says to. He wants you to take a time to consider what it's going to mean to follow him because being a Christian isn't easy. It, it's not like a, a walk in the park. And so when you're confronted with a doctrine that doesn't agree with your cultural understanding, what do you do? Do you argue for a new understanding of the Bible? Or do you make it your mission to understand what the Bible says to believe it, and to live it out. How do you react? Because when Jesus says something, that's the truth. And we need to follow that even when it goes against what we want to believe. The Nazarenes, those in Nazareth, they didn't want to do that. Instead of being confronted with what Jesus was saying and repenting or changing their view, instead they try to kill him. They wanted him to do for them what he'd done for others. And it's not that Jesus didn't do the signs for them because he couldn't. I, I don't believe that he couldn't have done it. But I, but I think part of it is this level of unbelief, this refusal to believe the truth. Instead of being hurled down the cliff, I love what happens. Verse 30, but passing through their midst, he went away. It's like Jesus just walks through them and goes away. And often we want to stop at this point in this passage because there's a, you know, a new sub, subheading for the next section. But I think Luke has actually intentionally shared a couple of extra stories at this point for effect. Because right after this, Jesus walks down to Capernaum. Remember, this is the one where he said, you, you want me to do signs for you like I did in Capernaum. Well, where does he go? He goes to Capernaum. And what does he do? Well, the first thing he does is he heals a man with an unclean demon. He does a sign. He, he heals and makes someone whole. But it's not just that. The next section goes on to he heals many people. Luke 4, 38. Uh, he left the synagogue, entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. He stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her, and immediately she rose. He heals Simon's mother-in-law. And it actually says here that he actually goes on and heals all those, those who were there who were sick. 
every one of them. I think it's important to point out here that in this case, Jesus heals everyone. But there's other parts of the New Testament where he doesn't, in the gospel, where he doesn't heal everyone. He actually walks away to the next town to go and preach the next town. We don't, we don't know why he chooses to heal some and to not heal others. But I, I want to be, be careful also to say that it's not always a matter of not enough faith. It's complicated. And it's not a matter of not enough prayer. You know, when I went through my depression years ago, I had a couple of comments that were not helpful. You know, just pray more. Just pray more. It's not what I needed. It's not what I needed to hear. Sometimes Jesus heals. Sometimes he doesn't. It's complicated. We don't know why he chooses one or the other. But the next section, he goes on, and Jesus goes and preaches in more and more synagogues, sharing the story, sharing the truth. And each of those times, he's not recorded of having his life threatened. The Nazarenes refused to take Jesus at his word. And instead of listening to him and, and, re, and changing their belief, they wanted to kill him. But even when it seems to go against everything that's within us. We choose Jesus by believing what he says. And that belief is played out in our trust, in our obedience. If you think back to the time before you were a Christian, the time before you submitted your life to Christ, do you remember when you were first confronted with the idea that you are a sinner? That's a pretty, pretty deep-held belief that you're fine as you're growing up, going through life. Some of us grew up in the church, and we may not have the same, uh, the same um, big conversion story, but for some of you, I'm sure that was the case. You thought you were fine. You thought things were going well, and all of a sudden, someone says to you, you know what? You're a sinner. You need Jesus to save you. Do you remember that confrontation? What did you do? Did, did, you, did you just sort of uh, say, nah, you're not right, I'm fine, I'm fine? Or did you stop and think, well, what's this Jesus and what's he saying and how, do, how am I supposed to know that I'm a sinner and how, what do I do about it? Now, I hope, I pray that what you did was actually to submit to Christ, to acknowledge your sin, to take him as your Lord and Savior and then to choose to walk in obedience to him each and every day. think throughout our lives, we will come face to face with things we believe that go against what the Bible says. So the question is, what are you going to do about it? Are you going to choose to believe the Bible or are you going to choose to believe the culture? Let's pray. Father, we come to you now after having read this event in the life of Jesus where he confronts the belief of some people and tries to show them the error of their ways. And God, it's easy for us to point at the 
people in Nazareth who, who didn't do what Jesus said and point at them and say they should have believed him. But God, don't let us miss the fact that we are the same as them. What will we do when we're confronted with that unbelief? God, it's my prayer that your spirit would work in us in a way that would prompt us, would show us those doctrines, those uh, situations we're holding on to that are not actually true or, or not as true as we want to believe. And God, may you protect us as a church from the culture around us trying to tell us how we should how we should be, how we should act, how we should do church. And God, would you help us to hold strongly and firmly to your word? We thank you for Jesus and for what he's done for us. We thank you for his clarifying of scripture. But even more so, we're so thankful for his death on the cross. That means we can be made right with you. So God, even now as we sing and worship, I pray that you would be working in our minds, working in our hearts to show us those doctrines that we're holding on to. We thank you. We love you. Amen.